All right, I want to I want to say something, Will, and you may need to put this at the beginning somewhere. Jason and I are recording this. We're sitting in the production studio here at Middlebury. We're about 15 feet apart for social distancing purposes, and we each have our own microphone and headphones and recorder to provide a good. So it's a little bit awkward because when we're not speaking, we have to mute ourselves. Otherwise, there's this weird echo thing, and as a result, the conversation might feel a little bit formal or artificial. Anyone who has attended one of these workshops is going to say, wow, they're usually talking over one another and disagreeing with one another all the time. (laughs) And we can't quite reproduce that. Welcome back to, yes, another episode of the Video Essay Podcast. An epic episode, a great episode, a long episode, and yes, an episode that has been released only one week from the previous episode of this podcast. I felt really guilty about going so long without producing an episode of the show that I wanted to release to rapid fire, boom, boom. So if you're listening to this episode, which will feature my former teachers and my mentors, Jason Mattel and Christian Keithley, don't forget that one week ago, I released an episode called On Publishing, the video essay, which featured a group of editors of publications that publish video essays. Michael Leader, BBC's Inside Cinema, Adam Woodward of Little White Lies, and Yos Broen of The Film Grant. So make sure you check out that episode. Don't skip over it. You're going to learn a lot. On today's show, as I've already mentioned, we have Mattel and Keithley, Keithley and Mattel, Chris and Jason. They are professors at Middlebury College. I had the good fortune of having both of them as teachers, and they are, without question, two leaders in the field of video essay. I want to preface my conversation with Chris and Jason by plugging my newsletter, the videoessay.substack.com. It's called Notes on Videographic Criticism. And the reason I'm doing that is because in last Friday's newsletter, comes out every Friday, I sort of gave a little bit of my own origin story and talked about how I came to be introduced to videographic criticism and the role that Jason and Chris had in my education. And also trying to just say that if it weren't for Jason and Chris and for me having the good fortune to have ended up at Middlebury, uh, I wouldn't be talking to you into your ear right now. Maybe that would be a good thing. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So please go check out the newsletter and subscribe. Uh, Not only does it feature a mini essay by me every week, but it also features links to all sorts of good stuff. Information on festivals that are soliciting video essays, links to great writings on video essays that are being published, interviews with student video essay makers, and a whole lot more. So please go subscribe. Now, I should also say that my conversation with Chris and Jason is limited to the scholarship and sound and image workshop mostly, um, which is the two-week program that they run for scholars in Middlebury, Vermont, where they learn the theory and technical skills necessary to produce videographic work. The scholarship and sound and image workshop is affectionately referred to as video camp. um, So we will refer to it as video camp uh, throughout the episode. And one of the reasons that Jason and Chris are coming on is because unfortunately video camp was obviously canceled this year due to uh, the coronavirus. 
we figured that it would be a good time to kind of have a reunion of sorts and make up in this in this small little way for uh, the absence of video camp this year. Of course, the other reason is that listeners of this podcast, has, as you, I'm sure you know by now, I have been making the videographic exercises that Jason and Chris, um, in collaboration with Katie Grant and also Ethan Murphy, made for the Scholarship and Sound and Image Workshop. And today you'll be assigned your final videographic exercise, at least for now. And so we figured it would be a good way to kind of tie a bow uh, on those exercises, move beyond them and say goodbye. So I really hope that you enjoy uh, today's conversation. I know I did. It's a long one. So buckle up. You might want to digest it in a couple of parts. But I promise that if you are at all interested in videographic criticism, it's it's really such a worthwhile conversation. Before we get into the final videographic exercise and then the conversation, and that is that Sydney Harris, Kevin B. Lee and I are still looking for video essays related to Black Lives Matter uh, and other pertinent topics, uh, something that I mentioned on last week's show. And so you can learn more about the, the videographic playlist that we are assembling and our call for submissions at videoessay.com slash Black Lives Matter. Please check that out. There's tons and tons of links to great stuff that you can watch. I'm also pleased to share that my next guest will be Sydney. I had asked Sydney to come on the podcast uh, before we had even, you know, started collaborating on the Black Lives Matter video essay playlist. Uh, Sydney is, of course, an, an accomplished video essay maker. You may recall that in the very first episode of this podcast with Catherine Grant, uh, Katie selected Sydney's piece, Cotton, the Fabric of Genocide, for us to talk about. So it'll be really great to dive back into that essay and, and you know, talk to Sydney about it, its creation and also the work that she's she's made since then. I'm also very excited to talk to Sydney because she and I are both students, budding scholars who are very interested in this work. So I think it'll be very cool, you know, for Sydney and I to, to talk about that angle. You know, a lot of my past guests on this show have either been, you know, critics who have been doing this work for a long time or already established scholars. So I think Sydney and I will be able to have a really good conversation about what it's like to be a student making this work. So be on the lookout for my conversation with Sydney. And now, finally, break out the tissues. It's the last, the fifth of our videographic exercise homework. Now, it is my hope to try out more exercises uh, sometime in the future, but I think, you know, we all need a bit of a break right now. And the final one is the abstract trailer. And again, all of these exercises are outlined in the videographic essay, Practice and Pedagogy by Chris Keithley, Jason Mattel, and Katie Grant. And of course, much of this uh, episode will be dedicated to discussing this online Scalar book, uh, but you can find it at videographicessay.org. So the abstract trailer, in this form, we ask participants to consider features of both the scholarly abstract, subject and critical approach, and the motion picture trailer, style and tone. One key goal of this video, as with a movie preview, was to make others want to see your final project. We asked participants to spend the weekend producing an abstract trailer lasting no more than two minutes of their final videographic project. So what does that final videographic project mean? As you may know, in the first week of the Scholarship and Sound and Image Workshop, participants make these five videographic exercises. And then the second week is dedicated to producing a final, a draft of a final video essay. Now, some scholars come in with an idea and that's what they work on the second week. Others come in with a version of the idea, completely change their mind, and then that becomes the subject um, of the video essay that they work on in week two. In this case for the abstract trailer, what I'd like you to do is to make that two-minute video, make it about a video essay that you would like to make. 
that video essay that has always been in the back of your head that you've always, you know, wanted to do or wanted to see. I think making the abstract trailer, as Jason and Chris and I will discuss on the show, is a great way to just see if an idea is even worth pursuing. Um, And the great thing about the abstract trailer is it doesn't need to be necessarily scholarly in nature itself. You know, doing these exercises has been a risk. I really get that. You know, putting yourself out there and making these video essays, if it's new for you, is really, really hard. And I think that's something that all of us who have made this work experienced. When I did this in a classroom, each day, you know, we would have to have our pieces screened in front of everyone else and have them picked apart and interrogated. So, you know, I, I totally recognize that, you know, for a lot of people, myself included, you know, making a video essay and putting it online is a risk. And this abstract trailer is a risk as well, but I also think it's a really good opportunity to kind of put the nugget of an idea just in its origins out there into the public and to kind of see what people think about it, to get feedback and to kind of feel your way through an idea. So, What's that video essay that you've always wanted to make, that you've always wanted to see be made? Go and make an abstract trailer for it, and then please send it in, and I'll just add these to the webpage whenever I get them. Now, I know this homework has been assigned a little close to the voiceover exercise, um, so I'd really encourage you to do the voiceover exercise first, and then send in the abstract trailer. And once the webpages are set up for these exercises, you know, I have no problem updating them you know, kind of in perpetuity. So if you're listening to this three months from now, and you wanna make an abstract trailer, go ahead and send it in. I'm kind of being brief in the abstract trailer right now because we're going to discuss it even more in this episode with Chris and Jason. And if this conversation gets you really excited about these videographic exercises and you're now saying, oh, I want to make a Pechacucha or an epigraph or a multi-screen, please feel free to send those to me as well. And I'd be happy to add them uh, to the web pages and the Vimeo showcases that I've been making of these exercises. Uh, and you can email me willdegravio at gmail.com. And now here's our conversation with Jason and Chris. Now we come to the interview portion of the show where I'm sitting down here with Jason Mattel and Chris Keithley, who are fresh from their win of the SCMS Innovative Pedagogy Award. So I can only assume this is kind of your first your first press stop on your on your tour. You know, you win the Academy Award, you go on Letterman you win that award, you come here. So congratulations and and welcome. So this is definitely a weird conversation for me, or maybe weird's not the right word, but it's interesting because I feel like I know most all of the answers to the questions that I'm going to ask you. But I guess the, the first question that I actually, I only know bits and pieces of is what is your, as we're calling it, origin story? How did you become familiar with video essay or videographic criticism? And then kind of what about that prompted your own creation? And I guess I think it 
it makes sense to start with Chris. Yeah, this goes back actually for me a long way. When probably senior year of college, so this would have been around 1985, I... Um, somehow got interested in the idea of what it would be like to make a film, uh, some kind of nonfiction film that was essayistic. I hadn't seen essay films at that point. I didn't know what they were. But I, I was specifically interested in the adaptations. Like, how would I take an essay that I really thought was intellectually exciting and adapt it for audiovisual presentation. So I sort of chewed on this for a while after I graduated, and I think four years after I graduated, four or five years, I went back to get a master's degree. This was at University of Florida. And one of the things I did uh, when I was doing my MA was um, I attempted this. I'd made a one-hour video adaptation of the historian Carlo Ginsberg's essay, Clues, Morelli, Freud, and Sherlock Holmes. And the adaptation, it was partial, but it was also worked through with other things. It's also about the Lindbergh kidnapping, and it's also uh, got a family story uh, about me. So that was my first attempt at doing it. Then I went to the Art Institute in Chicago to do an MFA, and there, too, I did another essay adaptation, this time an, uh, an essay by Robert Ray called Snapshots. This piece was about 20 minutes long. It was 16-millimeter projected film and two video, flanked by two video monitors running simultaneously. So then after that, I went to Iowa, did my PhD, got a job, wrote a book on cinephilia, and then once that was done, I came back to wanting to do this kind of work. And at that point, I, the digital transition was happening. And I guess probably the first thing I did that I finished was uh, and shared was video called Pass the Salt, which is about a scene from Anatomy of a Murder. I also started um, around this time teaching a course on, uh, we didn't call it videographic criticism. I might have called it the multimedia essay or something. And I did it a couple of times and it went all right. Students enjoyed doing it, but I was still sort of having a tough time figuring out how to approach it. The first time I assigned too many readings, theoretical readings and so forth. And I decided I need to get to the making more quickly. But the real turning point came uh, one January, you know, here at Middlebury, we have this four week January term where uh, students take one class. I taught a course called Filmmaking with Limits, which uh, the idea for it I stole from our friend Eric Faden, who teaches at Bucknell. And what the course was, was I would give assignments every day for students to work on individually or in groups that, that had really specific formal parameters, no content uh, suggestions at all. So it might be, to give a quick example, I might put students in groups of three and say, all right, you need to make a two-minute video. All three of you have to appear in the video, but only one person can be on camera at a time, and every cut has to be prompted by an eyeline match. And that was it. And part of it was to, to get them to understand the way in which form, formal constraints could generate content. Now, while I was working on uh, teaching that class, Jason and I would meet virtually every day to talk about um, new ideas for assignments. So that was crucial in, you know, our, our conversations and his ideas were crucial in developing that class and making it work. And at some point, I don't know if it was the two of us or what, th thought this is a way to teach the video essay class uh, using this form. And that's where it's, and Jason, I'm gonna let Jason take over here. It was really this, this parameter-based uh, approach that got Jason really engaged. I'll let you take over. So Chris and I 
both came to Middlebury in 2002, and we came with very different backgrounds. Um, he's a, a film scholar and also, as he says, has an MFA in filmmaking. Um, I'm a, a media scholar primarily on television and didn't have much of a creative background with video. But what we found from the very beginning, we became very good friends and also really interested in how each other teaches. And, and we did a lot of sort of bouncing ideas back and forth. Like Chris said, like later working through these um, parameter approach, and I was really fascinated by that. I remember early in, in my career at Middlebury, I was teaching a class on digital media technology in which I was asking students to make digital media objects, not knowing exactly what that might be and just sort of seeing what happened. And Chris really helped me kind of work through ideas of, of how to make them simultaneously critical, but also creative. So I was always interested in that from a pedagogical point of view, but not for my own work. I very much wrote books and essays. When Chris started doing this multimedia essay class, which then became the class Videographic Film and Media Studies, at that point, I was really invested in uh, building the digital humanities at Middlebury and trying to think about, I, I co-founded this program called the Digital Liberal Arts and really thinking about how do we engage with digital technologies in new and innovative ways while still keeping with the disciplinary backbones that we're all teaching in. And it seemed like this multimedia essay class was a great example of it. So Chris and I would talk and think through ways to for him to teach it. And then I saw that there was an opportunity uh, sponsored by the National Endowment for Humanities called uh, Advanced Institutes, or no, Institute for Advanced Topics in uh, Digital Humanities. And basically, it was a grant program that allows an institution to set up a workshop to teach something uh, intensely over, usually in the summer. And I thought this was a really great opportunity. So we applied to the NEH to do a two-week summer workshop that we called Scholarship in Sound and Image to this grant program, and we're fortunate enough to get it. And it was really trying to build on the pedagogical model that Chris had developed at the very time that we saw that there was a real growth in videographic criticism. Because at the same time, early 2000s, or sorry, early 2010s, um, around 2012 or so, Chris started talking with Katie Grant, who you've had on the show, about publication venues. And that conversation led to the formation of In Transition, which is a whole other origin story. And, and I was involved with Media Commons to uh, help develop that and run that site. So In Transition is developing at this time that we're also applying for this grant. And we think this is a, a great synergy. If we get this grant, it will allow us to train scholars to be able to make video essays and to be able to be peer reviewers for video essays. And we were really fortunate. Everything really worked out well. NEH gave us the grant. Um, uh, Media Commons and SCMS helped support the growth of In Transition. And in the summer of 2015, we were able to offer the first you know, summer workshop on uh, scholarship and sound and image. At, at this time, I had never made a video essay. So like, I had done nothing of this. I, I barely knew how to use a video editing program, mostly used to edit the videos, like my home movies, of my kids playing music. And um, so I went into the first videographic workshop really as someone to help run the workshop as a, I, the, the, the breakdown that we talked about is that Chris would be the director and I would be the producer. So I was in charge of, of 
all the logistics, taking care of housing and travel and all that, and uh, making sure that things were running. Well, Chris was really the the brains of the operation of you know in terms of creatively, along with and, and it's important to note uh, crucially Ethan Murphy, who is our colleague here at Middlebury, who he runs all of our technology, our facilities, our equipment room. He teaches classes, he mentors students, he teaches us everything we need to know, and he's just a huge partner in in pedagogy and in planning this whole thing out. So the three of us had a series of of um, lunches that spring leading up to the first workshop, figuring out, so what are we going to do for two weeks? I sort of forget that when we started this, that, that there was this idea that he was going to be the producer and I was going to be the director, because this lasted, you know, maybe 10 minutes, <laughs> that <laughs> distinction. Um, uh, it, yeah, it became, in fact, I have a, a vivid recollection, I genuinely do, of, all right, so we have this idea of how we're going to uh, sketch out the first week with these exercises, and the second week participants will be working on a project of their own. I remember sitting in my office one day, and Jason comes in and says, do you know what a Pechacucha is? <laughs> I had no idea. And he said he pitched the idea for the videographic Pechacucha, which is the first exercise we give. Um, and it has become an extremely important cornerstone exercise. Uh, so that was all his. Uh, I, just, I just approved it as the director. <laughs> it, it, was, it was mine insofar as I thought that it would be useful to have a highly parametered idea, you know, that, you know, as I think your listeners know, because they've been making them, the Pechacucha is 10 six-second video shots with one minute of audio, uh, all with straight cuts from the same film. That idea was very much because the Pechacucha as a form of presentation, you know, this sort of lightning talk model was, I wouldn't say it's all the rage, but it was getting a little bit of a buzz, especially amongst digital humanities circles as a kind of cool thing, cool way to think using technology, right? That otherwise wouldn't be very easy to do, right? To have a, a uh, talk in which your ideas have to be structured to this very arbitrary time limit. And when I read about that, it just seemed like, oh, well, this is kind of like what Chris is doing with these videographic exercises. So I just threw the idea out there. And we were very fortunate that it worked. And it worked not only to create really interesting one-minute videos, but also as a great way to teach the basics of video editing for people who had never done it. Because we really designed the workshop for people who had no previous experience with video editing. And the class as well. You know, it, you don't have to have taken a bunch of production courses. The, the idea is you could sit down at Premiere for the very first time and learn what you need to learn in order to make these things. Right. I want to I want to get into that a little really dive, you know, deep into that later and definitely also talk a little bit more about the Pechacucha, but real quickly I'm wondering there's so much to cover, but I'd just be curious to know what the pitch was like to the NEH for funding for this. And the reason I ask that is because, I mean, I talk about this all the time on the show, but I was obviously your student and Middlebury is an institution that is very accepting of this kind of work, obviously, between you two, Ethan, Louisa Stein, a whole bunch of people. And so for me now going off to Cambridge, it's kind of the first time I've ever encountered not serious resistance, but some kind of resistance to this idea. And it's kind of been, I, I knew it was out there, but it was kind of like, oh, wait, how do I, how do I, how do I talk about this differently to someone who might be a little skeptical of it? What was the pitch like to the NEH for the workshop? Well, actually, Jason leaves out one one thing, is that we applied for the grant the first year and didn't get it. Um, and then the second time we did. 
um, and there were, I think it was something crucial happened. First of all, I, th I think that probably part of the way we pitched it is we pointed to the fact that, again, as Jason pointed out, partly in this kind of digital humanities umbrella, we situated it within that because that was something they were going to want to hear. And we pointed to the amount of scholarship, audiovisual scholarship about film and media that was circulating in non-academic venues as DVD supplements or people making work and like I was or KD was and posting it on uh, YouTube or Vimeo or wherever. Uh, Kevin Lee was starting to do work then. We highlighted that this work was already going on just outside of academically sanctioned venues. And the argument was, if this is going to develop a f as a form, which it clearly is, it makes sense for scholars to participate in what it becomes. So I think that there was a way for us to I think we did a good job of situating it that way so they could see its value for an educational institution as something for professors, scholars to be involved in, in developing. I think, Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was in between that first failed application and the second successful one that In Transition launched and we really figured out we know how to teach this with these parameter-based assignments. So the second application, our pedagogical approach was much more thoroughly developed, and I think they were reassured by that. Jason might remember other things. Yeah, I'd say that it was a combination of, of what Chris said. I think that, if, obviously, you apply for grants, and you never know why you don't get them or, or why you do get them. Um, you know, But my guess is the landscape between the first grant proposal, which I think was in 2012, and the second one, which was in 2014, I think the you know video essays were just something that was a lot more visible and uh, circulating in the public sphere on YouTube um, and on Vimeo. And I think really importantly, we had in transition as something that was not just a sort of idea. I think in 2012, we, we said, you know, we're working to develop a site that can publish them. By 2014, we could say, there is a site it launched this year, and it's affiliated with Media Commons. And Media Commons had been a fairly well-established publishing site for digital uh, publications tied to film and media studies. And I think one that the uh, NEH had actually supported in the past. So there was a sense of, oh, OK, they're onto something that has been some what vetted and that has uh, the right people involved. I think that one of the really big pitches was this idea of this is a form of digital humanities that you haven't thought of as part of the digital humanities. And I've talked to people at the NEH about this, and you know they see that film and media studies is in some ways an ideal discipline for digital humanities because we work with digital objects all the time, whether it's you know an old film that's been digitized or something that was born digital. But for whatever reasons, the leaders of digital humanities, as it has has grown in the past decade, have come more from history, literature, classics, you know, some fields that are not just kind of as digitally focused. So I think they were particularly excited as a way of saying, is there a, a mode of digital scholarship that works for film and media studies to get them in, engaged uh, in a really innovative and productive way? And I know that they, they obviously funded the workshop. And then a year later, we put in a grant for a second two workshops um, that we hosted in 2017 and 2018, which we got. And I know that NEH said, we can't keep funding you, not because we don't want to, but 
because we have you know we don't re, we don't fund these projects over and over again. We'll do it twice and then, then we'll stop. But they've been really supportive of the work and sort of and and trying to come up with ways to to help promote it and sustain it. When someone finishes the workshop, or I I guess more broadly, what are the goals of the workshop? And what I mean by that is I don't mean what are the goals for individuals. Those might vary. But where what is it that you had hoped the workshop would become in academia and would do for this type of work more broadly in academia. And I guess now that you've done four of them, the obvious follow-up there is, has it become what you hoped it would become? Or whether has it had an impact that has surprised you? Now that you've done it four times and you would be doing it a fifth time right now, what has been the impact that you've seen or is there an impact that you had hoped that hasn't yet occurred? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, right? But I would say one of the things I remember we put in the first grant and has been a kind of touchstone for me is that the goal of the workshop or a key goal of the workshop is to create a community of practice. You know, while we want each individual participant to take steps forward in being a maker, consumer, and teacher of videographic work, I think what we really wanted more than more than that at the individual level was to have a sense that there is a community within academia that talks about these things, that watches them, that makes them, that thinks through how it could be supported and spread. And that that community is not just limited to the intense two weeks of the workshop, that it lasts beyond that. Like that was... I mean, we had a lot of concerns the first year. Will anyone apply? Will it be, you know, will it work? You know, will people feel motivated enough to actually do the work? But then I think one of the main questions is, okay, when they leave, will they keep doing it? And and we never thought, like, we would be a failure if... Every, if, unless every single person does. But enough people that we feel like, okay, this makes a difference. And we really were conscious that first year especially of selecting people. At first, we weren't sure we were going to get enough applicants. Uh, we kind of wrote the grant assuming planning for around 15 applicants or 15 participants. Would we get enough? And I remember like the week before the deadline, we had about 12. And we're like, uh, well, we could run it with 12, I guess. And then, you know, because it's academia, the day before the deadline, we got a flood of people applying. We ended up getting 120 applicants for only 15 slots, right? So like that was gratifying. Okay, people want to do this. That's great. The amazing thing is that not only have most of the people from that first workshop become really significant videographic critics, editors that use videographic criticism in their work, uh, in their publishing work, and also uh, teachers of videographic work, but that it really is a community. There are some really strong friendships that develop through the workshop and collaborations as well, where people are working together. So, you know, in that regard, and I attribute it primarily, well, to two things. First thing, to the quality of the people who were there, right? We just got great people. But also to the fact that, especially for faculty, there's a real specialness to the ability to spend two weeks away from home focused on something new and learning. Most people who become you know, academics love to learn, and oftentimes the job prevents you from doing that, at least in a really intense way. So I think that, that that's the sort of magic of the workshop that I didn't anticipate that has really been the, the sustenance, is that people love to do it because it's just an opportunity to learn and to learn as a community. I think we were astonished in many ways at, at um, 
how successful the first workshop was. And when I say how successful is, we just wanted it to happen. What we had not, I think, fully anticipated because we were so, so focused on preparing it is the community that would emerge for those two weeks, which was spectacular, and for us. Uh, you know, think about it. We're, this, as you said, we've done it four times. We teach all year. We finish. Um, graduation here is around Memorial Day. We've got two weeks to get ready, and we do it again, and we keep doing it because it's kind of the favorite part of our year now. It's incredibly stimulating, incredibly fun. And then there's, the, there's our joke that each year we say, this is the best class ever. This is the best class ever. And at the time, I think we feel that. But yeah. the fact that we've done it four times and all four of the experiences have been outstanding is really pretty remarkable. We're, that, that's why we're so bummed about not being able to do it this year, um, because we look forward to it. Obviously, we know, I assume listeners out there can assume why the workshop is not happening this year. And that's, for all the reasons you just gave, obviously incredibly disappointing. And I feel so sorry for those who weren't able to participate. And so are there plans to recreate the workshop for those scholars? What is kind of the the plan going forward? And perhaps, Jason, you could just explain a little bit how last year was the first year that the workshop was not funded by uh, the NEH. I think that might be an important distinction. Yeah. So... Um like I mentioned, we got two grants from the NEH that funded three workshops in 2015, 2017, and 2018. When we realized that there would not be funding available, we talked a lot about, does it make sense to try to offer it using another model? And we decided to give it a go for 2019, where the participants paid to attend. One of the wonderful things about the NEH model was that anyone who attended would have all their costs paid for, uh, food, lodging, travel. That changed last year, and we did the experiment to say, well, let's go ahead and offer it as a tuition-driven model. We got far fewer applicants, but we got enough, and the quality didn't go down. Um, so last year, we had you know another batch of 15 or so uh, participants here, and they were great. And there was not a sense of, oh, this is somehow because we don't have the sort of free reign to accept anyone, that would be a, a real loss. I mean, one thing that did happen was is that, you know, obviously anyone who was able to pay the costs, both the travel and the tuition, they, mo you know, almost everyone had uh, institutional support to do so, right? So almost everyone were faculty members in a sort of permanent uh, position. They had a couple people who were more postdocs or visiting, but most were, you know, tenure track or tenured faculty. So this year, what we had had done was we actually uh, designated a couple, we, we did the budget to figure out a way that we could create a couple of sort of scholarship slots for people who didn't have institutional funding. So we had two people who were going to be funded at, at a, you know, a much lower level of, uh, you know, of tuition. When we had to cancel, what that meant is that, you know, we, we we desperately hope we can do it in 2021. It's it's very difficult at this moment to think beyond you know a week or two of uh, planning for much. But we're really hopeful we can do it in 2021. We've told everyone who was slated to attend in 
in 2020 that they have a spot if they want it for 2021. Obviously, things may change. Uh, institutional support may change. Obviously, higher education is in a crisis mode, so we don't know what's going to be in terms of health. We don't know what's going to be in terms of travel restrictions or whatnot. But we, we really hope that anyone who was slated to attend can return uh, to the accepted list and uh, come and do it next June. Um, and that if there are any people who cannot, then we'll open it up to other applicants as well. You know, obviously, I hope it's able to happen next year because it is at least, you know, for me and I know for a lot of other people, um, definitely a very important experience in my life. And so I hope a lot of people will get to experience that. Before we, I want to get talk more about the exercises because that's what listeners of this podcast have been making over the past few weeks and I guess months at this point. But real quickly, I want to talk a little bit about the course that you teach at Middlebury, which is based off video or you know video camp is based off a version of that course and they kind of feed one another. I remember when I took that course, which would have been in 2017, I think. I said to you Jason beforehand like I'm super nervous because I do have not used an editing software or if I had I used it to like edit my my middle school news show or something like it was not any real editing. And so I'm wondering, this is kind of a two part question. My sense having been in the course itself is that there's two types of students who really benefit from this type of work. It's maybe someone who is more production heavy and is now kind of has a way to engage with criticism in a new way that perhaps they have not before and can really, you know, bring that creative energy to. And then it's someone who I would fall into this camp who is much more comfortable writing a written essay who now gets to work with the creative. And my question is, do you agree with kind of these this binary that I'm setting up, which I understand doesn't cover everyone? How from a pedagogical standpoint, how do you how do those two aims work off one another to create what I found anecdotally to be a very successful classroom environment? And this applies to video camp as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're totally right uh, in terms of we get two, and it's a spectrum. Obviously, there are some students who are comfortable with both, some are comfortable with neither and have to learn. Um, but I think just a little bit of context before I let Chris talk a little bit more about the class since he just finished teaching it um, this spring. Middlebury as a program is somewhat unique in that, so for listeners who don't know, Middlebury is a small liberal arts college, especially if you're not in the U.S. That's a kind of strange academic animal in that uh, students enter, it's undergraduate only and students enter without having a clear path of study, probably. They don't know what they're going to major in. Uh, Will, you had no idea you were going to be a film major. Um, <laughs> nope. And, and uh, you know, and you you were, I asked you to be my advisor because I was into journalism and thought, oh, maybe I'll write a uh, thesis on Fox News. You know, I was not yep. interested in your video essays at all at first. <laughs> yep. And and so, and this is pretty typical of Middlebury students. They really explore the curriculum uh, very broadly. Sciences, social sciences, humanities, arts, languages, everything. So, our major is, you know, we're not film school, but we have both film and media criticism, history, theory, alongside production, uh, video making, screenwriting. And we integrate those in our curriculum, so every student has to do some of both. And then we have a number of courses like this one in which 
they are doing both in the same course. And this is really the kind of pedagogical philosophy of the entire department and the curriculum. We have in our department, we have six faculty members, three of whom are primarily filmmakers and three of whom are primarily critics, but we all do a little of everything, right? I mean, we have our filmmakers write critical work and our uh, critics like Chris and I uh, make video essays and uh, remix and the like. So, so that hybridity is really baked into our curriculum. And I think most students will come into the class with that sense that, that these things are in tandem and talking to one another. It's funny. I think that production students find that um, this is challenging maybe in a way they had not anticipated. It's not obviously not like doing any other kind of fiction, nonfiction production where you prepare things in advance. You're working exclusively with other material, with existing material. Some of them like it and have a facility with it, and some don't. And it's the same with study students. Often we have students who are more inclined towards studies, not interested in production, who come in, but they want to just apply their skills as a writer, uh, as a, a analyst and so forth, and just apply that to the to the film, but the most interesting are always this group in the middle who come from both sides that discover they have, perhaps discover, they have a facility for this. That is, they have a, a strong aesthetic sensibility that seems to be innate, I guess. They're comfortable working with images and sounds. They understand aesthetic as well as rhetorical choices that they're making. And I think in, in many ways, and I, I can also say I've had students who I've had in other classes who, when it comes to doing traditional written um, work, they were okay. They were not the strongest. They were fine. But they were exceptional at this. And I think that it, it also is wonderful in that it gives students who may not always be at their best doing traditional written assignments a way to do something where they really are at their best. And that's being valued. And not just by me, because we share the work in class. The other students are seeing it. It becomes clear who, I, I hate to say it, but some people just get it. They have a knack for it. They understand how to manage it. You know, we look at a lot of work. The exercises are designed to bring them to that. That's specifically what the exercises are designed for, as well as to teach them some basics about uh, Adobe Premiere and how to use it. But how to think about the film they're working with, um, as Jason is fond of saying, as an archive of images and sounds that it can be taken apart and recombined in different ways. And as I said, some people are just good at building objects out of that, uh, that then say something. Right. And I, and I would say that if you're someone out there who's interested in teaching this course or taking a course or anything, I think even if you come away with it, like, eh, maybe this isn't for me, maybe I don't want to make this work. Your written work will be better after doing it, I think, because of that intimacy, as you say, with the image and sounds. And you really get to dissect a thing. At least I know this is true for me, that I don't think I truly understood how a film worked until I started really pulling it apart. Right, yeah. exactly. Until you start, it's like, you know, you take the clock apart to see how it works. That is what this is also designed to do. But you get to put the clock back together and odd ways to show things. Yeah, and I'd say on that level as well, I think the same is true for the summer workshop. You know, we have faculty who are, you know, some of them are quite advanced and have been doing this for decades. And they say, 
I mean, a, a great example is someone uh, if, uh, who's been on your podcast, Liz Green. She said that you know she was in the 2015 workshop and she'd been working on David Lynch films for more than a decade. And she said in those two weeks, she noticed things that she had never noticed before. And it's not because she didn't have the insight or hadn't spent the time. It's just that you start seeing things differently when you put the film in a video platform. It's just a different way of experiencing it. And, um, and a number of people say that. And then they say that, you know, it changes not only your insights, but it also changes your mode of critical writing. And that I mean, I certainly feel like my writing has changed in that I, you know, since I started doing video work, I think a lot more about like, is this the best way to express this? And by best way, I don't mean, are these the right words, but rather are words right? Do we, you know, is that the way to get at it or are there other ways? I know I keep saying that we're going to get to talking about the exercises, but one, but one more, um, one more follow-up question there. The, the year I first came to the workshop was 2017, summer of 2017, and I was writing about it for the local newspaper. I, I'm going to cover this in my intro to the podcast, so I won't regurgitate it here. But I remember that in the article that I wrote and in talking to, to students, I mean, that was the year you did the with graduate students. And if I remember correctly, several of them were trying to make some videographic adaptation or component of their of their dissertation or trying to think through one element of their dissertation in a new way and that's what that's what they kept saying to me first question is why did you decide to do graduate students that year and how have you heard i don't know the follow up to them telling me that that was their goal so was that actually realized <laughs> Part of the reason we did the second workshop exclusively with graduate students is because when we sent out uh, the announcement for the first workshop, we had it open to faculty and graduate students because we had no idea what kind of applicant pool we were going to get. Because we were so overwhelmed by the number, we thought it might be best, first of all, just to work with, well, at that point, we didn't know there was going to be any more, but to work with faculty, we thought it might be a little, the dynamic might be difficult or complicated if there were faculty and graduate students. Of course, again, we hadn't done it before. We didn't know that the dynamic always seems to be great. So we decided when we got the second grant for the next two workshops to have one just for graduate students. Uh, so that's why we did that. Yes, some, of, some people did work that was specific to their dissertation research. In the current issue of In Transition 7.1, Katie Bird, who was in that class, um, was doing research about Steadicam technology. She came in with a pretty clear sense that that's what she wanted her project to be. And by the end of the second week, she had a pretty good um, partial draft of what, of what she was uh, going to be doing. But then she went back, went back to graduate school and had to finish and had to write her dissertation. And that was the priority. And, you know, I think probably Jason and Katie Grant and I and Ethan were sitting around and I wonder if Katie's going to finish that, that piece because she was so, well, once that got done, she did. She returned to it. She did complete it. It's in the current issue and it's, it's terrific. I believe there are several people who are in that class I remember Jordan Schoening did a piece about the follow shot, which we published, and it's a, related to his interest in camera movement. Jason, who else can you think of? Nicole Morse? 
Yeah, I mean, so Nicole's wasn't directly tied to her dissertation. I mean, there there were some people who was. I mean, Patrick Sullivan's piece about sound and animation uh, was directly tied to his dissertation research. One of the things we try to say in our in the sort of pitch to the. Uh, to people at the beginning of the workshop is don't come on, don't come into this trying to make a video adaptation of an essay you've already written or research you've already done because it really curtails the possibilities of discovery. You know, one, one of the real mantras that we have in the in our approach in the class and the workshop is that this is not just another way of expressing ideas, but it's another way of thinking. And if you try to go ahead and say, all right, I've written this essay or I've you know done a seminar paper or I have a dissertation chapter that's all about this and I want to present the material in videographic form, it really lends itself to a much more explanatory, explanatory model and also one that's far less organic. It feels like you're reading an, or you're watching an adaptation of a written piece. I think about in the first workshop, Patrick Keating was there and he was writing a book about cinematography and camera movement. And he said that he wanted to make basically a video for each chapter. And at first he was thinking, I want to illustrate the ideas in each chapter because it's really hard to write a book about camera movement, right? You can't see camera movement on the page. So his first idea was to kind of illustrate it. And then as he started working through it, the videos that he produced, which are all just fabulous. He does great work. They're in dialogue with the ideas in the book, but they are not merely illustrations. They are new ways of thinking through the research. And and that was the real ethos we tried to encourage, that it's not just about taking your pre-existing research, whether it be a book you're writing, an article, or a dissertation, and adapting it, but really thinking through. I mean, I think Katie's piece on Steadicam is another great example. It's not like what she writes. It's in dialogue with that research. Research and it's, you know, she couldn't have made that video without that research, but it's not the same as the written work. By the way, if you want to see some of Patrick Keating's videos, he's published several uh, at the British film journal Movie, which is available online. Check them out. Now let's transition to finally talking about what I would, what are the five core main videographic exercises that comprise the first week of the workshop. That is what listeners, those are the exercises that listeners have been making as part of the show, which has been super, super cool. Now, Jason, you alluded to the Pecha Kucha earlier and briefly gave us a background of its history. And folks who are interested in reading about these exercises can go to your website, uh, videographicessay.org, which we'll talk about later. Why is the Pecha Kucha the first exercise? And what is the kind of pedagogical aim of that exercise? So when Chris and, and sort of in consultation with Ethan and I were putting together the list of exercises uh, that we would do in the workshop, one of the things we did was we made a list of what are the technical skills that someone who doesn't know how to use Premiere or any other video editing software needs to learn. And instead of saying day one here, make a video essay, being able to say, you can only do this, right? Because there's a lot of, there are a lot of skills you need to be able to do that. So being able to say, really the core idea of the Pecha Kucha is putting together subclips. 
So how do you choose subclips from a film? How do you uh, isolate the video from the audio and separate them? And then how do you put them together in a timeline and then like do all the things of exporting the timeline and whatnot? So we kind of came up with a list of skills that we felt like everyone needed and built them progressively into the exercises. So the, the core skill, editing skill of the Pechacucha is straight cuts just juxtaposing one video with one video clip with another video clip. And there's a lot of sort of back stuff, you know, kind of background stuff you need to be able to do. How do I rip my media? How do I import it? How do I create subclips, et cetera? And Ethan in that first day sort of walks through that process uh, with everyone to make sure that they're they're able to do so. But for someone who's never done it before, it really is a, a simple enough thing. The other thing that I really like about the Pechacucha is that it is so constraining. A six-second clip of video, just it, it's it's brutal. If you're depending on the film you're working, in, like you have no uh, wiggle room there. You just have to find six seconds, and you know, for some films, that means that there have to be director cuts in the in the video itself. It means that you know you may be very limited in other ways. And what it does is it forces people to stop thinking first and foremost about what am I trying to say with this video and rather how can I find six seconds and that first day because the, the way that it's structured is you know everyone arrives on Sunday Monday morning we get together and sort of do an overview of what we're going to be doing and we present the page of exercise Monday afternoon Ethan gives them this intensive laboratory experience of this is how you do it in uh, premiere and then Monday night they're making them and and Tuesday morning, we watch them. So it's really intense in that way. One of the mantras of the workshop is make first, think later. And I think that the Pecha Kucha really encourages that because it's really hard to make a Pecha Kucha that has an argument or has a critical idea. So that's good because if you come in thinking that you want to say something, here's my argument about this film, you're going to actually not discover it in the platform. You know, it reminds me of a funny thing happened, I think it was last year or the year before, I'm not sure, maybe year before. We we came together on Tuesday morning, we watched the Pechacuchas all together, and we were talking about them. And at one point, I said something to the effect that, well, some of those were clearly better than others. <laughs> and and Jason decided to play the good cop and kind of, uh, well, I don't know what I was saying. But, but the point of it was this, is that everybody in the room watching those at some point said to themselves, ooh, that was a good one, which then raises the question, what constitutes good in, in a situation like this? And it goes back to the sense, you're building an object. Sometimes you see something that has, uh, in these exercises, there is some controlled, consistent tone that is struck. There is a collection of images that seem to follow one another in some way that feels right. The images against the sound work in a particularly effective way. As I said, we often say you're building an object, but you may not be communicating in the normal way, but you can still make something that has a sense of coherence about it. As Jason said, so you've got, in the Pechacucha, you've got 10 six-second segments, which we're careful not to say because uh, we want their, we want the exercises to be both very rigid and also very flexible. So some people naturally think that we mean 
a six segments without a cut in it, but we don't say that. Of course, if you're going to use clips that have cuts in them, it makes it harder to control the rhythm of the piece, or it makes the, the rhythm more complex, because um, that's one of, the, one of the elements of your object in, in this assignment is rhythm. Then there's the 10 seconds of audio that don't match. And one of the things we do is on Tuesday morning when they come in, they think they're done. We take them to the lab again and say, all right, make a copy of your Pecha delete the audio and replace it with a second audio track. We give them 15 minutes, a ridiculous amount of time. Typically about half of the people will tell you that they're one that they had to do in 15 minutes replacing the audio they like better. But it's most importantly, it's a way for them to see the, the way in which these images, what they've arranged, register completely differently against different audio. Also, it's always fun to see someone who they catch on early start stretching the boundaries. And I remember the first year, Alison Dufresne on the Pechicucci was working with the Stepford Wives, and it's going along the way the Pechicucci goes, and then suddenly in the middle, audio and video sync up, and then they go back out again. And obviously, we never said you couldn't do that. We didn't think of it. And it was the kind of thing that makes everybody in the room go, oh, there's a lot more room with these than I thought, even though I'm really limited. And that's when it starts to get um, the most stimulating is when people are respecting the limits, but testing them appropriately in certain ways. One of the elements of the page Kucha that I really uh, am always curious to see if people will do, and it's only happened a couple times with me with students or in the workshop, um, and not extensively, is the repetition of clips. There's no rule against it. We just say select 10. We don't say 10 distinct, different, you know, can't have any, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't use the same 10 video or slightly out of phase. I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities there, but people don't do that, right? You know, but there, there are sort of all these opportunities for playing with the form um, that is, in some ways, it's the most restrictive and limiting mode of video making. But I think there are all ways that people can do it that they you know, either have or haven't pushed uh, the boundaries. The last thing I would just say about the Pecha Kucha is another thing I like about it is that, like Chris said, you can tell some feel like they work better or not, but that's almost exclusively separate from whether people who, are, um, who made them learn something about their films and if they, like, quote unquote, did a good job, right? I think a lot of times there's a sense that the product is not very good, but it was hugely productive for the creator. I think the, the Pecha Kucha, so for folks who may not be familiar, I was the teaching assistant of the 2019 workshop. And the teaching teaching assistant, I kind of think it's like the person who has the late night shift on uh, for video camp, because which is fine by me, because as you guys know, who've gotten emails from me as a student, I'm up till late in, late in the, or the early hours of the morning. But there's a great variance of folks who may take 30 minutes on a Pecha Kucha, or some folks who will spend six hours on a Pecha Kucha. Because there is that variance, and it doesn't match experience with video editing. You might think, oh, well, the person who's like good technologically can do it quicker. And that's true for some people. But there are some people I can think of who are very skilled technologically, who spent an incredible amount of time doing this, quote unquote, simplest of exercises. Like I remember when I agreed to be the teaching assistant and the three of us kind of, I think we like went out and like grabbed a beer and we're talking, you guys were kind of explaining the workshop to me. One of the things you talked about was the need to teach participants 
how to unlearn their scholarly training for a brief two-week period. And I think for the Pecha Kucha, because it's so not rigid, that's really hard for people to understand. So sometimes, even though in theory, it could be the, the, the you know take the shortest amount of time to create, it sometimes is the longest because our brains are so used to, you know, following a specific set of guidelines when completing a homework assignment. And I think the Pechacucha, as I said, is the perfect example of that. Well, I think that a lot of people, and this is true of Middlebury undergraduates and both the grad students and the um, faculty members in the workshop, you don't want, especially in the first, you know, sort of assignment of a semester, you don't want to fail but it's really hard to know what failure means on a Pechacucha. So people are trying to get it right, but there's no right there. So One thing I'm eager to hear your, hear your thoughts on is, so listeners right now began with the Pechacucha, but then in the, in the way that I assigned homework to them, I deviated from the chronological order of the exercises at video camp, which I believe, at least according to, the, to your website, in my own memory, go Pechacucha, voiceover, epigraph, multi-scream. I assign the voiceover and then and then abstract trailer. But of the first four, I've assigned the voiceover last because in my experience, it's been the one that people are most intimidated by. So A, what is the background of the voiceover exercise? And B, why is it second? Is it to just push people right into the deep end? What's the idea behind that? I think what you said was correct. We do... Uh, come to the voiceover early because people are resistant to it. And we, yeah, we don't have any problem with throwing them into the, pushing them into the deep end. I think that some people there find that they're capable of doing voiceover performance in a way that they thought they couldn't. I think that there's also the sense that if people discover that early, they might let it stew how they can use it later on in something rather than the more typical thing, which is people not wanting to use it. It is a point of discomfort, and I think that for a lot of people, which is strange because a lot of academics talk and like to hear ourselves talk, certainly, but um, don't like to listen to ourselves talk if, if you catch the difference. So I think trying to break people through that barrier is, is important. The other thing that happened was the first year of the workshop when we did the voiceover assignment, uh, which is a, a assignment that, that basically asks people to kind of tell a story over a piece of footage from their film. It was amazing how quickly the participants made their story about film theory or some, you know, some very scholarly idea, right? It was, and that wasn't our intent. Our intent was much more like, a fairy tale or an anecdote. So we, we had to refine the parameters in future years that explicitly were like, tell a joke, you know, say an anecdote, relay a personal uh, sort of moment. And we also included it that, that people could read something, you know, that other people had written that had nothing to do with the film, right? Like the idea is that it's, it's not to engage in scholarly discourse. And I think that's one of the really key things is that thinking about how do you present a vocal channel that's not scholarly? And where does that non-scholarly vocal channel belong in videographic criticism? And sort of opens that possibility up a little bit more. Also, well, to go back to one of the things on the first day of the workshop, we look at some samples of videographic criticism to get us going. 
And a lot of those have voiceover. Matt Zoller cites on Wes Anderson, uh, Koganada's piece, What is Neorealism? There are a couple of others. It's a, it is a standard device used in videographic work, so I think there's the need to get to it pretty quickly. My guess is we could swap out a couple of the exercises midweek and make it still make it work. But the Pechacucha needs to come first, and the abstract trailer needs to come last. So the epigraph is the third exercise. Now, this is this is an exercise that, and we're going to get to Katie's contribution to this workshop um, in a minute, but this is one that, and you write about this in the on the website, that Katie is a very prolific videographic epigraph maker. Yeah, the form really began with her. She started making, as we know, Katie's made... Um, dozens and dozens of video pieces. And she started making epigraphs often as a kind of a memorial tribute when someone would die, a director, a performer, uh, whomever. And she'd make a short piece and there would usually be a quotation to go with it that said something about this figure and their importance. And she made a number of them. And we knew we needed to work with text on screen. And the epigraph provided this. That it, I remember uh, in the first workshop, Corey Creekmer saying, when you read a scholarly essay, that if it has an epigraph, the epigraph is the place where the scholarly essay dips its toe into the poetic. And I think that it, that gets at something we were hoping for. That And here, uh, they could use critical scholarly material to, as their source to quote from, but placing it in context with the image, it took on a poetic, it could take on a poetical quality, as well as illuminate something about whatever their media object was they're working with. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the key elements that, that Chris, uh, you know, mentioned is that the epigraph is in the, over the course of the workshop, it's the moment in which we allow scholarly discourse into the room. We really try to say, look, especially for people who are faculty and really are thinking in a very sort of academic mode, it's really hard to be not academic when you're making these things and more discovery and, and poetic and creative. So the epigraph is the moment in which academic writing can return, but it has to do so in a way that is more poetic, more dynamic, and not simply here is a piece of writing that explicates the film that it's over, right? There has to be some sort of uh, playfulness um, that that is operative there. It seems to me that the epigraph is the one that has the most potential to be something more than merely an exercise. Totally. And, you know, Katie has Katie has a, a collection on Vimeo of the videographic epigraph. And those some of those are things that people have made in the workshop. But many of them are just like with Katie tribute videos or otherwise just a mode of exploration. It is something that is more potentially organic. I mean, there are other parameters in our version that it has to be a single moment from a film. You know, you can't. The goal was to, to avoid any additional editing, really, just to restrict too many choices. I mean, one of the things that we've learned is the more possibilities you give people, the harder it is for them to make decisions. And it's a lot easier if you tell them, no, you can't edit. You can only like use the, a, a scene or a, a continual bit of footage. I think that that's really important, uh, having that restriction. And that I think that's a good transition to the multi-screen, which I would say also has the potential to be its own video essay. 
but you put a very interesting parameter on it that I think really limits someone from going and making their own standalone essay. And that is that whatever moving image object the person is working with, they must use images, they must use a moving image object moved by someone else in the workshop, right? So if I'm working with Vertigo and the person in the workshop is working with Toy Story, I have to put them together. And so what, talk a little bit about the multi-screen generally, but also that parameter in particular. The, you know, the technical element that we were teaching, that's both a technical element and a videographic formal uh, dimension is spatial montage, having multiple images on screen together. And this is a staple of videographic work and it's really important. And it's also, it's, it's a sort of little challenging area for some people in using Premiere, just because it's kind of fussy sometimes and things like keyframes. And, and whatnot. Um, so we d dedicated a day to learning how to do that. The reason why we had people work use other people's footage. And in the first workshop, the first two workshops, I think we said that they had to use the footage from other people's exercises. And then we expanded it to say, okay, everyone just uploads their full film to, to a shared server so that you can use other moments from the film. And that's more so that you can, not that you can kind of talk about a part of the film or incorporate parts of the film that other people haven't worked with, but it's more that you can access things without text on screen if it's from the epigraph or whatnot. The reason is is tied to this idea that we talked about earlier of creating a community of practice. The idea is that everyone by this point, so in the workshop, this is Thursday, that we're showing the multi-screen pieces. At this point, everyone has spent three days together and watched each other's videographic work, and they're living together as well. So they're probably talking about the films they're working on, so that if I'm, you know, working on on a film that may be tied to my area of expertise and that someone else hasn't seen, you know, over the dining hall, over, you know, a beer at night, people are talking about, well, what is that film and, and you know, like, what's your interest in it, et cetera. And this is an opportunity to sort of extend that conversation into the videographic realm. And really, uh, and there's a, also a kind of fun sort of playfulness as to who's going to choose my video and, you know, who's going to work on my film and like, what are they going to say about it? And, and some really wonderful juxtapositions, you know, so I think that, yes, it's incredibly limiting that you can only refer to the 15 p films that are, you know, people are working with or TV episodes, but it also leads to some really uh, interesting and creative juxtapositions that resonate within the community. One of the things I want to emphasize, especially with the epigraph and the multi-screen, is one of the things we talk about a lot in videographic practice is that the choices you make are both aesthetic choices and rhetorical choices. So when working with the epigraph, as we say, when you read a book, the, at some point the, t the, the text, the font, the style, it sort of becomes invisible to you. But on a screen, it's never invisible to you. So things like um, font style, font size, color, placement within the frame, whether it's dynamic, it moves, or it's static, whether it fades in, how large your blocks of text are. These are not only rhetorical choices so that you can read and understand, but they're aesthetic choices. The same is true with the multi-screen. It's funny, this it, the simplest question that comes up over and over, it came up in my class with the students here this spring, is with the multi-screen, if they're only using two, 
Is it better to put them side by side or one on top of the other, or maybe situated kind of diagonally? And what's, what's interesting is how much the content and tone of the images determines that. And in a class this spring, as I said, we, we were looking at one that was side by side, and I asked, what, if you had to put one on top, which one would it be? And the class just seemed to agree, that, well, that would be wrong. That's not, that's, that would disrupt what, it, what they're trying to get at here. Those kinds of really simple choices are, in fact, crucial for producing effective work. One thing that we, before we get to the last exercise, one thing that we haven't touched on yet is at video camp, they're all screened the next day. So you don't get, there's this, I would say a combination of excitement, but also pressure in making a videographic exercise because you know that everyone in the room is going to see it. And then not only is everyone going to see it, but we're going to break into small groups and talk about them at length. And the group at large is going to talk about them. I think I can, you know, guess the answer here, but how essential is that to this process? It's crucial. Um, You know, I think that one of the things early on when we were planning the workshop that we wanted to embrace is, I mean, this is more the kind of creative workshop MFA model of doing a critique. And, And these are exercises, so we're not brutal about them by any means, but be able to really look at someone's work and say, what works, what doesn't, and how might this be different, and what possibilities might there be? That's really essential. I actually thought for a moment when it was clear because of the pandemic that we were going to have to cancel this summer workshop, thinking, well, could we do it remote? Is there a way we could do it. And yes, I mean, we could teach the technical skills and we could even, you know, sort of teach some of the aesthetic ideas that we're getting at. What we couldn't do is create that community of people watching each other's work in a room. And that I think is really important. It does create that pressure. As you said, there are a lot of people, because you got to remember most of the people who are doing this are people who have been, you know, in academia for quite a long time and are not, and are good at it. And they're not used to presenting work that they don't feel confident in. And here they are presenting work in a medium that they've never used before, right? Like it's nerve wracking. Um, So I think that having that sort of shared experience is really important. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone's in the same boat. And some of the people with technical background struggle. Some of the people with no technical background excel. And I think having that sort of shared experience viewing each other work is really, really crucial to that. Also, by midweek, already people are catching on. No one makes five great exercises. They just don't. And it's funny how somebody might do two that are terrific, and then the third one, eh, something's not working, or vice versa. So people can hit their stride late. And it's, it's, uh, that's an important thing for them to be there to see. And not only that, but here, the, the thoughts of the people who are making the exercises. Here's what I was thinking. Here's what I was trying to get at. Here's what didn't work. Here's what I liked and so forth. And I'll say for me as the as the TA, one of the most jarring experiences was, as I just alluded to, each day we kind of break off into four groups. And Chris takes a group, Jason takes a group, Ethan takes a group, and I as the TA took a group. And I'm like, oh, here I am two weeks after graduating from undergrad. And now I'm like leading a group of scholars and they're like looking to me to lead this. And people would want to like, okay, well, can I just preface this first? And I'd be like, no. We're, we're just going to watch it and discuss. And I think to Jason's point about how being there is so essential, I think by wa- watching other people's work and being there in that creative environment, it really opens up your mind to the possibilities 
everyone's trying to look for the best in everyone else's work, which I think is a, just people being nice. But also, I think that's what the exercises teach you to think because you have this empathy of having created them yourself, right? So everyone goes in looking for the strongest element. And in that, they realize, oh, well, actually, I like this and I wouldn't have thought that I would, but now I do. And it works here for this reason. And it's really remarkable. Yeah. And everyone, I mean, especially because this is new to almost everyone here um, in the workshop, I think everyone comes at a place of vulnerability, right? No one's ready to sort of, oh, like, like Chris said, make five excellent exercises. People are always struggling and pushing themselves. And, you know, sometimes people are playing it safe and we try to sort of nudge them a little bit and say, that was a little obvious. Are there ways that you could take risks and, and, and whatnot? So I think that that's, that's the culture of people really trying to push themselves and support each other at the same time. So let's get to the final exercise, which I will have already introduced earlier in this podcast. So the final exercise is the abstract trailer, which is of course taken from the abstract of a scholarly essay. And this is meant to, I guess, act as a preview to the second week of the video workshop in which participants begin working on a a video essay of their own. What was the background, I guess, behind the creation of the trailer? And more specifically, why how do all of those elements that we talked about and that occur in the first four days, how are they meant to kind of culminate in this final piece? Just as the first exercise, the Pechacucha, was Jason's idea, so was the abstract trailer. He came up with this, and it emerged because we had had a different exercise initially that wasn't working, that was was based on reworking a trailer. A kind of, we're doing a, what was the, do we have a title for it? It was just the videographic trailer. Yeah, videographic trailer. And we, I think we watched Godard's trailer for, uh, that he had made for Bresson's Mouchette. And then we looked at some of those remix trailers like Shining, which are more amusing. But it, the project just didn't, it didn't really work. We encouraged, we did get a couple of interesting ones. People would make a trailer for a film in which it appeared that a minor character was in fact the protagonist or something like that. And they were okay. But overall, we felt like it wasn't working. Um, and we, after that first year, we made some changes. And we knew that the trailer wasn't working, and then Jason came up with this. But it also solved a second problem. I'll let him talk about how he came to it, but it solved a second problem, which was as we moved into the second week, once we finished the exercises, in the second week, participants are supposed to begin working on their own projects. And we were trying to find a way to get that jump started. And so it solved two problems as Jason proposed it. It was a better exercise than the one we had, and it provided this kind of leapfrog into the next week so that students could turn their attention to the project they had proposed or a new one that they had come up with that week that they were going to work on. It forced them to start working on it, but in a particular way, in a more manageable way. Uh, Jason, I'll let you take over now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we were trying to figure out is how do we make this pivot? So when people apply for the workshop, they pitch a project, usually tied to their research expertise. 
people mention on the first day of the workshop, this is what I intend to do, but we don't dwell on it because we want to focus on the exercises. Oftentimes, the films or TV programs that people choose for that first week is not tied to their final essay project, right? They they, they want to work on use some other project, some other sort of source material for the exercises. So the abstract trailer, when we were thinking about how to set up the second week better, it was really the so just the play on word of abstract of being both you know an abstract uh, for an essay like you said and the fact that we wanted to have a degree of abstraction be part of this mode of working that when Chris and I were talking about it, I pitched this idea of the abstract trailer to use some of the rhetorical norms of a film trailer, but also some of the kind of critical norms of a research abstract and trying to think about how do you create interest in what might be coming is one of the goals, obviously, of a trailer, but it also ideally of a, of a abstract as well. So, so that was some of the ideas there. Uh, practically, what we do is we, get, we assign the abstract trailer on Friday, and then we give them the weekend to work on it. Now, it's only it's a maximum of two minutes. For most people, they're, they've got enough skill that it's not going to take them a ton of time to do it, so it allows them to take a break from the, from the lab, which is really important. But also to think through that pivot. How am I going to talk about this idea that I came to the workshop with? How am I going to address this videographically? And usually what we find is that the project ideas that they had on the first day have changed drastically. Some of them, it's completely retooled. They realize, actually, I'm not going to do that thing that I was going to do because I've discovered something new from the from the exercises, or I want to really rethink my approach to it. So there's a lot of change that happens in that time. And I think that the, the abstract trailer allows them to dive in in a way that, as Chris says, it's manageable, but it's also experimental. It's like it's almost like trying on clothes to say, is this the right way to address this? And I can think of a lot of examples where the ideas in a trailer uh, are there, but the rhetorical approach is not, right? Or sometimes the reverse, that they realize, oh, this is the right tone, but I'm going to sort of shift how I'm going to express uh, what I'm going to say, more or less, in in the video essay that I end up making out of this. So it's really a a simultaneously an attempt to sort of workshop your ideas and to explore how you might present it. Well, to everyone out there who's listening and is debating whether to make an abstract trailer, I think to Jason's point and what he describes, you know, obviously you're not going to have the structure of the workshop, but it's meant to explore an idea that you already have. And there's really no right way or wrong way to do it. And I think personally, it's a good way to just kind of ease your way into a videographic project that you want to try out and that you want to do. And, you know, if you make the trailer and then you decide, eh, well, maybe I don't want to make that. At least you have, you've, you've given it some attempt. So I look forward to watching the abstract trailers that hopefully will slowly start to trickle in after this episode. So a really interesting example of an abstract trailer that I often go back to came from the course I taught in 2017 while you were in the course. And uh, one of the students in the class, Emma Hampston, who was also the TA for the 2016 workshop, or no, sorry, 20, 2018 workshop, right. So Emma knew that she wanted to do her final video essay on Hitchcock and issues of gender and violence. And her abstract trailer involved a lot of text on screen and was very sort of personal and narrative in terms of like, 
talking through what led her to want to explore this idea. It did not bear any resemblance to the video that she ended up producing, which is a, a truly remarkable piece that, that she did really great work on. But that trailer was the journey she needed to take in order to be able to produce the great final essay. And I think that's one way to think about the abstract trailer is that it, it is a, an attempt to work through this issue or this idea or this topic videographically, which then may not be what you end up doing, but it's important to get there. So I think allowing yourself, and you know, as when I teach students writing, I mean, this is similar. Sometimes you have to do kind of a discovery draft or, you know, sort of write three pages to realize, oh, what I really care about is this last paragraph. And you end up discarding the early stuff. So the abstract trailer is something that can be discarded, but still learned from. Let's transition briefly to the second week. Catherine Grant comes for the second week. And you two and Katie sort of act as the th as three mentors to the group and people divide up into into three sections. Talk a little bit about the role that Katie plays in this process. Well, as as you know from the website from uh, of what we've written about, she's a co-author. Her her participation has been profound from before the beginning. I guess I th I think Katie and I met about 12 years ago maybe, but we were both starting to do video essay work about the same time. I think Gira Shambu is the one who put us in touch with one another. We had seen one another's work online. And very early on, Katie and I talked about this idea of a, a journal, a peer-reviewed referee journal, open access for um, for videographic work very early on that eventually, of course, became in transition. And when we came up with the idea for this workshop and it was uh, what we pitched was that during the second week in addition to participants working on their own projects we would have special guests uh, who were um, active videographic makers come and talk about their work and also mentor the participants as they were developing their final projects. So Katie was one the first year, uh, Eric Faden came, Kevin B. Lee, and then since then we've had uh, others who were graduates of earlier classes um, like Allison Dufresne and Liz Green. But Katie st has typically stayed the longest. She's typically been here for the entire second week. She talks a lot about, she gives a presentation about her own work, works in progress, and she spends a great deal of time with with each of the participants as they as they wish, talking to them about their work, um, helping them develop it. She's a remarkable teacher and mentor at that, in, especially at that individual level, as people are trying to find their way towards something. Uh, yeah, she's uh, she's someone who brings not just her experience, but just this extraordinary sense of goodwill to the entire to the entire undertaking. And that's one of the things that makes her presence so crucial, especially in that second week when they're getting tired of me and Jason. <laughs> it's, it's time to bring in somebody new. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, uh, Katie's, uh, you know, great friend and, and just a pleasure to work with. And, you know, that 
when she arrives, the tone changes, not because she's she's bringing something different, but it's just the sense of like we're bringing in the reinforcements. And she, even though she's always jet lagged, she always has an energy that is uh, that that just sort of brings people up. And I think that for a lot of the participants, it's interesting they meet us when they feel complete like complete novices, and then they meet Katie when they feel like complete novices, but they're actually not, right? Because they actually have this experience of a very intense week of making things. And Katie comes in and reassures them, and she watches everyone's exercises. And she usually will like communicate individually, oh, I loved what you did in the epigraph, or you know, there was a really marvelous moment in your voiceover, or whatnot. And it, it just it buoys the, all the participants in a really wonderful way. And yeah, so I think that her presence is, is huge, and, and I would never want to do it without her uh, coming in for that second week. What has the collaboration been like with Katie in terms of this transatlantic partnership? Obviously, she is doing this work in the UK. You guys are doing it in the US and a small liberal arts college in Vermont specifically. How does your collaboration work in in that in that sense? One of the things that is important, I think especially early, because I think that while Chris had written a couple of things and published a couple of things about video essays and had published some video essays. I had done nothing uh, in, in regard to this. So, in some ways, in the first year especially, Katie was a uh, had produced more things and maybe had a stronger reputation online and certainly a global reputation. So, that certainly helped. I think that what because that was also right when In Transition had launched and it was, it was still um, fledgling, I think there was a sense that that she was bringing some legitimacy to it. The other thing I think that, that's important to note is that Middlebury in the summer is a very different place than during the academic year in that Middlebury hosts the summer language schools that are very well known and that have you know undergraduates and graduate students uh, at all points in their careers here uh, learning to speak foreign languages. And we kind of pitched this workshop to the administration of Middlebury as this is kind of like a language school for this mode of video criticism, right? So that sense of intense engagement is uh, very uh, vibrant throughout the, the college during the summer in that way. I think that one of the great byproducts of having Katie involved is that the workshop has gotten a reputation globally and that you know every year we've we always have people from Europe that attend we haven't had people from uh, other parts of the world beyond Europe and North America at this point but we're certainly open to that it's just people haven't uh, applied uh, with proposals that were going to work but I do think that there is a sense that there is a fluency um, in, with videographic work in the UK and Europe more broadly that Katie brought to the table and then a network that has emerged from the workshop and through Katie that that has made this uh, really a global phenomenon. I think another way that things get sustained importantly is, and Jason might know the number, the number of panels and presentations at our annual conference or at other special conferences around the world are given by uh, graduates, so to speak, of the workshop. It, hap it has happened a lot. Uh, um, and he spoke earlier about creating a community of practice. That has really happened. And so we, we'll get participants, three or four will come together and say, uh, hey, let's get together and 
propose a panel on some videographic topic for next year's SCMS conference. There have been quite a few. And now I think this last year, um, a couple of people have been presenting them at non-film conferences that say Latin American studies conferences or things like that. So there's that here. And, and in the UK, obviously with England being, as compared to the United States, much smaller, I think there's been a lot more interaction among workshop participants from there. Uh, and, and they've been extremely active over there in supporting, teaching, continuing to make and collaborate in that environment. And obviously, Katie's presence there has, has helped to um, promote and facilitate that. As many of you know, Jason and Katie both have large professional social social media footprints. I have none whatsoever. <laughs> um, well, I don't, but... Um, but that has also been huge in promoting uh, uh, this kind of work, the workshops, the conferences where people are presenting work and discussing this kind of videographics. It's been, it's been absolutely crucial. And one of the things that's been really great is that alumni of the workshop have gone on to have their work published. So, right, as of, this was as of the end of 2019, we had uh, 21 different alumni who had works published in In Transition. We've had 29 alumni who have had their work uh, presented at SCMS. There have been people who have uh, had work published at other online publications like Nexus or Movie. They've presented at other conferences like Sight and Sound or a special symposia in Berlin, um, in the UK. And they also have taken on editorial roles. So I think one important thing is is some of our um, alumni have uh, roles in editing journals that have helped bring the video essay to those journals. So John Gibbs with Movie, Yap Kuleman with Nexus, uh, Tracy Cox Stanton with uh, the cinephiles all have really done a great job of helping disseminate this form. And this is one of the ways that, that we've really seen the, the transformation of the, of the world of videographic criticism within academia, not just around in transition, but a whole bunch of other venues, conferences, and uh, opportunities. It's been cool for me, I guess, as a former mid-undergrad who has slowly beginning uh, venturing into this world myself to hear so many people talk about Middlebury, you know, and it's like, oh, you you know about the the Middlebury approach or the Middlebury school of thought around this? Is it? It's, uh, all, <laughs> it's all about branding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you've alluded to it already, and this will be our two final questions before we transition to just talking about, about some of the video essays made at the workshop briefly. The first is, how do your different specialties and your different backgrounds inform your partnership? It's funny, as Jason said earlier, we got here at the same time and uh, we were hired the same year and it was our great good fortune that we like one another. We get along really well. We don't always agree about everything, obviously, but as no one did. But, but we really do get along. Even before all of this, it's always been fun to have lunch and talk about whatever we're working on for classes, what scholarly work we're involved in. And the fact that we work in different areas hasn't been... And obviously, there may, are there, maybe there are sometimes limits to how much, obviously, there are limits to what I know about, about what uh, his scholarship has been in television and new media. But this seems not to have been a, 
been much of an issue. We enjoy sharing our ideas, talking about what we're working on. There have been plenty of times when I said, I'm working on this project. I don't know how to go about it. What do you think? Or when he was working on um, complex TV. And I remember conversations we had over lunch, very early ideas he had about how to organize the book that changed completely. And it, so then we just got doubly lucky when it, we discovered that we had a, this place where we could collaborate. And the fact that we're interested in in different media objects, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, seems to be completely irrelevant to what we do have in common about this kind of work and teaching um, teaching it in this kind of way. And again, that's the other thing that we're, uh, the, the layers of good fortune here are extraordinary. Not just that we were both interested in it, we're both interested in developing a way to teach it in a way that was quite similar. That was pretty amazing. So uh, I think that that um, the differences seem inconsequential, or maybe they're, the differences are essential in some way. Jason, what do you think? I, I think that the key thing is that we have very different objects of study in general, and we also have very different questions that we ask in our in our scholarship. But I think that the most important thing is that we we share a temperament which is a openness to something new that is not uniform in the academy let's just say um, there are a lot of scholars who get trained to do the thing that they do and feel like that's their thing and that anything that's different than that can be viewed as a threat or as irrelevant and Thankfully, both of us share the temperament of seeing something that's different and saying, huh, that's interesting. And then wanting to build on that and, and ask. And I think especially when it comes to teaching, and Middlebury is an is a institution that prides itself on uh, having very dedicated and innovative teaching, I think we're both constantly trying to learn how to do that aspect of our job. I don't want to say better, but I want to say in a, in a more interesting way. I, I don't. Th I think neither of us like to just do the same thing. Oh, I've taught this class seven times, and I'll just go do it again the same way. That's just not our temperaments. So I think that that sense of being willing to learn from one another and from our students and from our colleagues has allowed the collaboration to work. I mean, I think one advantage that that I think is useful is because Chris's reputation is primarily within you know quote unquote traditional film studies, and mine is within television and media studies. It has allowed our work to reach different cohorts. And one thing that's been gratifying in, in the early days um, of the workshop, you know, almost everyone who applied was a film scholar. Um, and I think video essays were very much a, the sort of purview of cinema and often a, a very narrow band of what cinema was. And I think that in more recent years, we've seen more and more uh, diversity of objects, both within cinema and within uh, other forms, more television and and sort of digital media forums that have become part of what videographic work can be about. So I think my um, sort of expertise in those areas has led, hopefully, to, to people feeling like, oh, even though I don't do film, I'll be welcomed there. You guys know this because I made a, my videographic epigraph that I made at the workshop was based on this joke, but I think one of my highlights isn't FMMC student was one day in film theory, Chris came in in a rage because you guys had just had a disagreement over Breaking Bad and I think television authorship. And 
I think Chris was saying that Breaking Bad shouldn't be considered in maybe Ryan Johnson's, how he considered him as an author because television is so collaborative and director. And then he was like, and I got him to admit that Breaking Bad doesn't have mise-en-scene, but he didn't agree with that. And then the whole class, just we just all started talking about it and we ate it up. And I can't think of her last name, but uh, Jenny, who was a, a workshop participant. Oilan Koloski. Oilan Koloski. I remember I, when I asked her this question of, I think she was at Wisconsin or something, and I was like, what's it like to come to a small college to do this? She said, and I think I quoted this in the article I wrote, was that I actually think that it's perfectly suited for a small college, the one that relies on heavy disagreement and discussion-based courses. You two, your personalities and the institution that you're at and everything from a student perspective, all kind of come together in this perfect mix. So I'll just I'll just toss in my own anecdote there. Yeah, and by the way, this thing about TV not having mise-en-scene, I've had to set a number of people straight on this. Sean O'Sullivan and I, we still go round and round about this. He'll understand one day. <laughs> so last question before we transition to talking about the video essays. But you've published a website, The Videographic Essay, Practice and Pedagogy. That is a bunch of awesome stuff. I've been linking to it, of course, on the podcast, so I assume people have clicked through it. But not only does it go over the exercises in depth, there are roundtable discussions between past campers that I think Jason facilitated. There's a conversation with, I think, Eric Faden and Kevin B. Lee. Uh, Katie writes about her work. Jason has a whole thing on fair use within it. Talk to me about the publication of that website and how it both is a chronicle of the workshop, but also kind of as a supplement goes beyond it. So I think one of the important things that we believed with the mission of the workshop is that it, it wasn't just about training 15 people in a given year, but rather sort of opening up a lot of these ideas to academia more broadly. And this ties very nicely into one of the missions of In Transition with our open peer review is we felt like given that video essays are a new form of scholarship with new norms of legitimacy and uh, like proper or appropriate modes of uh, critical engagement. Um, in Transition has an open peer review where, where scholars respond to videos by name and with their comments published in order to get people thinking about what can videographic criticism do and what does good videographic criticism look like and what are the range of possibilities. And I see that the videographicessay.org site is an extension of that. It's opening up the pedagogy and the various practical elements of being being a videographic producer that Kevin and Eric and Katie write about to a broader audience. And I think that's really important that people, it's not just this exclusive thing that we do at the workshop, although that's special because of the insular community that develops, but that it is available to other people. And I think it's wonderful that you're using the podcast as a way to extend that as well. And I hope people take advantage of the site and, and explore the material and feel free to write to us with other ideas for things we might add on to it. It's a, it's a robust site that can and certainly be expanded as uh, as time goes on. And it's important that the exercises and, and our pedagogical approach are there for anyone to take, use, add to, rework. Let us know how it works out. We're not trying to protect these things for ourselves, uh, for our own use exclusively, so to speak. We very much want um, others to take it up. Um, and we've talked to people who've been through the workshop or looked at the website and 
tried things out and said, and I tried this little twist on the assignment, or I added this, or I took this away, and it worked or didn't work, and here's why. That's really useful. It's because it's extremely important um, that the workshop is there to not only support scholars who want to start making videographic essays, but to support them in how to teach it. Because one of the things that I know I encountered, I think Jason has too, is I've presented at conferences or I've been somewhere and spoken to someone and uh, a, a faculty member who has said, I, I allow my students to make video essays in lieu of writing papers, but I don't have any idea how to teach them how to do it. And we thought, well, it'd be good if we share this so that maybe they can develop a way to teach them how to do it and teach themselves how to do it. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think the webs, the Scalar book website, I think is a really invaluable resource. And I look forward to seeing how it grows. And I, and I, I like this idea of an online of an online book. Um, and Jason, when you come on the show as the solo guest, we'll talk about your video essay book that you're working on uh, currently on Breaking Bad. But I asked the two of you to select a couple of video essays for us to talk about. And just due to time, we're going to kind of have a condensed discussion of them. But these are video essays that began as drafts, or it really began as, I guess, as ideas and abstract trailers, I assume, at the workshop. Jason, you said you wanted to just kind of say a few words about Nicole Morse's piece, uh, Some People Like Hearing Sad Things. And what I'd be curious to know, you know, I guess you could talk a little bit about why you selected the essay. How did you see the essay develop over time? And what is it, I guess, like to watch something go from an abstract trailer to a published essay, peer-reviewed, all that jazz? Go ahead. So this piece uh, was produced by Nicole Morse in the, the Graduate Student Workshop in 2017. I thought it was really interesting because, I mean, at first, it was one of the first Video works, videographic works um, coming out of the workshop focused on television. So I was working with Nicole on it, and they were very uh, interested in this one specific scene from the pilot, and uh, they wanted to explore how that scene sort of fit with a longer history of trans representation. Um, they had a lot of ideas in terms of the that history, and that was tied to research they'd done before. What I thought was was fascinating was how the sort of rhetorical mode really shifted, and uh, they were trying a number of different things with some voiceover at one point or some juxtaposition um, with other uh, footage and whatnot. But it was really in the discovery of this sort of playful is not the right word, but I, I feel like the, the the sort of very dynamic use of multiple uh, graphic images of footage, including repetition of the same piece of footage uh, side by side, and the sort of broken up text on screen that had a very collage feel. And I just remember in the uh, that second week, as we worked through this in a small group, so what we do is we have uh, like small mentor groups typically where one of us will work with between four and f five participants on their work and we'll, we'll workshop it together as a group so they'll see each other's work develop. And just seeing like the elements of like where things were put together on screen that sort of popped off, you know, and we would 
we would tell them, oh, yeah, yeah, that moment right there, that's the, what you really should go for. Like, that feels right, and it really is communicating in this way. The piece really just sort of started to coalesce over the course of that week. I don't remember how much was sort of complete at the end, but it was very close to complete. And I remember they submitted it to In Transition fairly, fairly soon after the workshop. And there was a real sense of, yeah, they'd really turned a corner and, and uh, been able to put something together in a really satisfying way. And I really like the fact that the piece, in talking about a television show, um, managed to simultaneously span uh, various facets of the series at large, but also really focus on a very specific moment from a very specific episode. Absolutely. And I, and I really appreciated reading Nicole's creator statement on In Transition, which really emphasizes how important the creative process was in informing the ideas of the piece. And I think, as you say, that is is so evident in watching the piece. I wonder, Jason, if, if real quick, because I think this is a good example, if you could just talk a little bit about for television production or video essays on television made at the workshop, television is hard to work with because obviously there's series of television. So sometimes a scholar has to focus on single episode or a moment in a pilot or a larger series. And as Nicole says in this, you know, they thought that the moment was unique, but then as you know, they began playing around with footage, it became something a lot broader. So I guess how does that inform television audiovisual criticism more broadly? I think it's one of the main reasons why there's been a lot less of it, right? Because, you know, at a practical level, there's just a lot more footage. So I'm doing this long form piece about Breaking Bad. And, you know, there's, I have like 60 episodes of this show in premiere. And that's, you know, a lot more footage than if you're working on a single film. So it's just managing that amount of footage is just, is just challenging, right? To find, okay, where am I going to find the right clip and, and, and whatnot? So that's a problem. Another problem is, so when Nicole started this, Transparent was actually still on the air. Um, it had yet to complete. So they were dealing with a moving target. And in fact, I think one of the interesting things is that they tried to grapple with the fact that between the workshop and the publication of it, the sort of emergence of some of the uh, sort of Me Too moments of Jeffrey Tambor and the critiques and then him getting fired from the show emerged. So they revised the video to include a brief mention of that and incorporated it to the degree that they thought it was appropriate. So I thought that was a sort of interesting development. And obviously that could happen with a film that's done, but the fact that it's a moving target that's ongoing, that's serialized, uh, it does raise a lot of challenges for a videographic creator. So I feel like it can be kind of daunting. It's kind of requires a little bit more uh, confidence in being able to tackle a long-form television project. So we, we have far fewer, um, I think, in the workshop, especially people who haven't had a lot of uh, video experience. I certainly know that had I started and had my first videos be about sort of television series that go for many years, it would have been a lot, it would be too daunting and I probably would have failed and, and sort of withdrew. One of the things that I found very effective in the piece just quickly was uh, the use of font, which is something that uh, Chris mentioned earlier. And so I think for folks who are who are looking for inspiration in videographic work, this is a great piece for all the reasons Jason mentioned and also those tiny details like how font contributes to the piece. And also a quick anecdote, I remember in the class I took with you, Jason, the day we were set to screen the first drafts of our essays, I think was the day after the allegations against Kevin Spacey uh, were reported. So it's it's been interesting to just 
again, see how video essay really needs to adapt to the times because it lives online um, and is part of a larger system. Well, yeah. And in that case, um, so one of the students in the class, Abby Rosenberg, was doing her final project on American beauty. She had to totally pivot, right? She's making a video that is in large part about voyeurism in American beauty. And suddenly she's like, oh, okay, how do I deal with the Kevin Spacey allegations? And this totally changes some moments in the film. And she was really elegantly being able to, to use that as kind of epilogue to the video she was making. Apologies to Nicole for having to, you know, move away from the essay uh, so quickly. But Chris, when I asked you to for a piece, you selected one that was published in the most recent issue of In Transition, and that's uh, Santa y Teresa, a walking dialogue between two Cuban characters by Michelle E. Farrell, which was created at the most recent workshop. And I was in Michelle's group as she was making this. So I also got to kind of see some of the earlier drafts of this piece. I guess, why did you select this? And, you know, kind of similar question to what I asked Jason, how did you, how did you see it evolve throughout the process? Well, first of all, I think the, the video is very good. I think it's quite lovely. But I guess I selected this because I wanted to say something more about the workshop, which is, as we've said before, we get a lot of people, we've had a lot of participants who have no experience uh, doing any kind of work like this. They've never worked in, in a nonlinear editing system. They have varying degrees of comfort. And one of the things I saw with Michelle was she was often on the verge of feeling like, I can't do this. She never gave in, which was important. But And she's not alone in that. I think we've had a lot of people come through here where at some point they're feeling like, I'm not sure I really can, I'm really not sure I've got this. And in that second week, she had this idea to talk about these two films and this seemingly recurring character. And there was a an imaginative quality to this that I actually quite like. But my recollection, and Will, I'd be curious to hear what you say, she had this and there was a struggle going on for her to get it into a shape that she was happy with, that she was comfortable with. And I may be misremembering this, but I feel like uh, on Wednesday afternoon of the second week, we, we ha on Friday afternoon of the second week, the last thing we do is we have a, everybody screens what they've got They're in progress. And I think probably on Wednesday afternoon, Michelle was worried, am I going to have anything to show? And at some point it clicked and she figured it out. It's sort of that, wait, I've got it. And and I've got it was complicated. It wasn't just, oh, I'll put this here and that there and that'll solve it. It was managing the material in a way that was well organized, but tonally very controlled. And it's part of the feature of this video is it's, this is, was a great example of someone figuring out, I got it. I got the tone. It's almost like once I get the tone, everything else is going to start to fall into place. And the tone Michelle found is also not her own interpersonal tone. She's very animated. She's very warm. Uh, she's got a lot of energy. She's very smart. But the tone is not that. The tone emerges out of this intersection of these two films. So it's it's a couple of things there. It's about that, that I wanted to talk about this. It's about someone discovering a tone that is not their own personal tone, but is appropriate for the work. It's about someone keeping at it long enough until it can unlock for them. And it did. Each year we d we've done this, there's no way to predict who's going to be, who's going to leave and finish work and submit it and who's not. And there are a whole host of reasons why somebody may not. 
they go back to an institution that can't provide them really with the support, the technical and other support they need, or they just feel creatively isolated. At any rate, it's always exciting to see anyone finish work, submit it, and see it published. And from last year's class, I guess Michelle was the first, right? So in the second week for just folks listening in, like I said, Chris leads a group, Katie leads a group, Jason leads a group. And then I kind of joined a group because I was working on a video essay of my own and also helping out people, obviously. And Michelle was in my group. And like, I have pictures on my phone of Michelle. We were in one of the rooms where the video essays were projected onto the wall. And she's like up on, up in front of the project, like up in front of the projection, like pointing things out and figuring it out. And I have a very clear memory of her describing the origin of this essay. And she says, you know, I was watching Santa Ana Andres and I saw this woman walking and I went, oh my God, that's Teresa from this film from 1975. That to me is like one of the, like such an organic, great illustration of how a video essay can originate. It can literally just be this brief similarity between two images and then you you go from there. It doesn't need to be anything more than that. For me, what's one of the cool things in watching this piece is how it can go from literally just a recalled memory of an image to its own media object. I think you're right here. It would have been I think it would be challenging for her to have turned this into a traditional scholarly essay. As a videographic piece, it feels fully developed and it says what it needs to say and it feels substantial. In writing, it wouldn't quite maybe feel like enough. But as you've also pointed out, crucial to this is her own place as a relay between these two films and her response to them, which again is not something you see in traditional written scholarship. So there's yet another reason why I wanted to highlight this is it's an example of someone making work that is generated in a way, as you point out, that that most traditional essays do not find or do not originate. Or if they do, that gets set aside and not addressed. And I thought that you were, I mean, one of the, the reasons that you maybe selected it is because I see a certain similarity between that and your own work, which is all about kind of these these memories of images. I thought that's what you were going to say. No, there may be something to that. Absolute, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Finally, Jason, I want to ask you about Adaptations Anomalies because on every show we talk to the creator of a work. We're not going to be able to do that with Chris, but maybe he can chime in with his thoughts on Jason's piece. But you basically, the reason we're going to talk about it is because you also essentially, as you already alluded to, played the role of workshop participant uh, the first year that you ran it and Adaptations Anomalies began uh, at the workshop. So maybe take your workshop host hat off for a minute and put on your student hat if you can and talk a little bit about how VideoCamp informed the creation of that essay. Yeah, I mean, th this essay would not exist without VideoCamp. So the origin is that, as we talked about earlier, the first year in 2015, we were uh, building these uh, exercises, and I had very little experience doing video editing, and I'd never used Premiere. So two weeks before uh, VideoCamp was supposed to start, I said, hey, how about I try to do all these exercises as a test drive to see how long they take me and what answers need to be given technically, right? So Ethan was able to tell him, you know, it was sort of a way that Ethan could figure out, well, what does someone need to learn to do this? At the time, I was writing a book about the film adaptation, the uh, Nick Cage, Meryl Streep, uh, Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones film. And so I said, well, I'm 
writing a film about it, so I know the film pretty, I mean, I'm writing a book about it. I know the film pretty well. I'll go ahead and use that. So I did the exercises for adaptation, which of course, as anyone who's done the exercises knows, you see, as you do them, you get the bug, right? And you're like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm invested in this film in premiere. I want to explore it. I want to do more with it. So, um, that first year, the abstract trailer was not one of the exercises. So none of the exercises pointed toward a larger video essay. It would, they were all standalone. As the second week rolled on, and I realized that primarily what I was doing was mentoring other people on their work and helping facilitate things, I also had time in the lab to play around. So I started exploring the film as a video essay. And because I was writing a book about the film, I was trying to figure out, well, what can I not say in the book? And really, the there were these two things in the film that I knew I wasn't going to be able to address in the book. This quotation that appears at the very end of the credits and the car beeps in the final uh, sort of climactic sequence. And both of them were things I had noticed about the film and I thought were interesting, but I didn't know how to put it in the book. So I figured, well, I'll make a video essay about that. And that's all I had going in. I didn't have any of the answers to these questions. I just had the questions. Why are these things here? And it was really over the course of that week that I started playing with the footage in Premiere, talking to Chris and Katie, especially Katie, who recommended this concept of the anomaly and how it fits with uh, Mikhail Iampolsky's uh, work. And I read that work over that week and I said, oh yes, this is exactly what I should be playing with. And then as I started building the essay, I really, I mean, I didn't know how to make a video essay for, you know, structurally. So I copied another one that I particularly liked, which was Chris's video, Pass the Salt. Um, it was basically, I said, oh, Chris does this thing, and I, you know, everyone should watch Pass the Salt. It's, it's a really wonderful work. And it, it, it made me realize that, that one of the things you can do in a video essay is uh, express ambivalence in tone and in critical rhetoric. And I thought that that was very fitting for the topic that I was exploring. So I basically copied Chris's approach and mapped it onto adaptation with an added level of meta because that's what the film's about. And, and sort of took a risk and tried it and it worked. And it was you know, largely because Chris and Katie gave such wonderful feedback and sort of pushed me in the right direction. And as part of this community, I was able to develop it. And at the end of the week, I, I screened a version which was rough but more or less mapped on to the entire video. I was gonna, I was just going to ask you that because I think the thing that those two pass the salt and adaptation I'm going to share is that I can imagine someone as they're watching it or after they watch it kind of going, is this guy serious? Like, oh, oh yeah. I mean, both of us have gotten that reaction. <laughs> yeah. Chris, feel free to chime in here. But you take a, I think what I would say is a videographically speaking, a big risk in that, which is where, okay, I might get it wrong, but you count the beeps of the car and then you go to the page in the novel that is the you know the numerical equivalent of that number of beeps and then you take your iPhone what i assume is your iPhone and kind of record yourself going to that page with your number and it's this it's this great moment but that i could see many people going like wait what what's happening right now what's happening right now so can you talk about that <laughs> i i kind of roughed out and did a edit and did a scratch voiceover for the first 2 thirds of the video where i'm primarily talking about the 3 and the quote at the end and i felt like that was working 
And then I had these beeps. And the beeps always just, they always interest me because they are sonically too loud in the mix, in the film, right? They call attention to themselves in a way that most films wouldn't have them there. So... I was thinking, well, why are they there? What does it mean? What does it do? And I didn't have anything to say about that. So I figured, well, what if I count them? And and literally, I just, like, what you see on the screen is kind of what I did. I just played the footage and counted it and came up with this number, 145. And I said, okay, well, what can I do with that? And then I said, well, what if I looked it up in The Orchid Thief, the nonfiction book that the film's based on? I did that live with my iPhone, right? Like, I didn't plan this. I just went ahead and scrolled through and used my my phone to film it and then zoomed in onto what struck me. So I was really just recording my experience of probing and seeing seeing what I might discover. And I was thankful that it worked and that it revealed something that I could make into a sort of chain of associations that doesn't make any logical sense, but made an effective sense for me in terms of the tone I was going for. I didn't know that. I love that backstory. Chris, I'll give you the last word on Jason's video essay in the spirit of video camp. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I was going to say, because he mentioned past the salt and he made it a point about past the salt one time that I hadn't actually thought about. And, and it follows from what you were just describing, this moment where he counts the beats and he gets a it's easy, no, I shouldn't say easy, let me rephrase that. It's possible to identify that as the moment in the video where things take a turn, so to speak. But as Jason once pointed out to me, in Past the Salt, there is never such indicative moment where you can say this is the moment where it, it, it rhetorically it takes a turn. As a result of that, I have had more than a few people assume that that the piece is to be taken absolutely straight and not as an affabulation. I'm not sure if one is preferable to the other, but that those are the risks that have you had Jason, have you had people misread report to you on misreading adaptations anomalies? What I've had, fair, one reaction I had, I showed it at SCMS uh, years ago, and and one reaction I had from someone in the audience was was that they found like that my vocal performance, they didn't use the word performance, but my, my vocal style was kind of overwrought, and, and they know me, so like there's someone who know how I speak, and they're like, that doesn't sound like you, you should just loosen up, you know, it sounds, you, you should speak more like you actually speak, until the end, and they were like, oh, that was a performance, yeah. right? And and that that realization that oh there there was a degree of performativity throughout but it doesn't reveal itself until the end. I don't think, I mean, yeah, yeah, a couple of people have asked me, so what do you think the beeps mean? Do you think the beeps mean that, right? You know, like, do you, you know, I don't think anyone thinks that I'm truly arguing that it is an act of plagiarism, but I think they do, some people have suggested that it, it seems like I, I take myself a little bit more seriously than maybe I do. Right. But I also like the ambivalence. Right. And the fact that it, I'm not sure how much in the first two thirds is to be taken straight. Right. It is it is more straight than the beeps, but it's not totally straight. I'm not saying this is an interpretation that I will defend. And I think the same is true in Past Assault. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that you believe. 
See, Chris, I think the moment, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think the moment in your essay that is does not, is not the, I guess the same, but is similar is when you say, I can't stop thinking about it. To me, that's the moment, which is the line that I stole in the video essay I made recently, which Adrian Martin commented and said, I love that you stole that because to me, I was trying to channel, I was trying to channel that in mind because for mine, just as you can't say, oh, Otto Preminger thought this, I'm not trying to say, oh, John Ford thought this, but I wonder, A, what you think of that, but also is it, to me, your use of I there is such a break from scholarship at that period, but maybe now that video essays have become more common, we more accept the I, so it's harder to, to recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that line where I say I can't stop thinking about it comes very early in the piece. And Jason has heard me tell this story many times, but when I started working on it, I brought home a version, a draft of the video and showed to my wife. And she said, well, you know, this is all going pretty well, but your, your, your tone of voice is all wrong. And I remember, well, what do you mean? And we had this conversation and it made me realize again that there needed to be some quality of vocal performativity that had not been there. And that's where it does um, make itself plain. But then what follows doesn't seem to be crazy in any way, if you know what I mean, and until at some point it becomes not straight, <laughs> I guess. But I think that, I mean, I, I, I think that for me in in... Both path, past assault and adaptations of anomalies. The the interesting thing is that yes, the like interpretations that are posited are not to be taken literally, and yet they are also meant to be the type of interpretations that we take literally. Right. Part of what I think both pieces do, and they do it in different ways, and, and largely because they're operating in different types of analysis and types of films. But I think both pieces raise this question of, isn't all interpretation kind of like this? And if not, explain to me how this is not normal interpretation. There's another component to this that I think is crucial to both of them. And it's one of the things that I think Jason and I both love a lot about doing this kind of work. We study movies and television. They're about storytelling. And there's a quality of storytelling about both of these videos that I find appealing. It it goes with, as you pointed out, when we were talking about Michelle Farrell's video, there's a quality of storytelling. It's not fictional, but there is a quality of storytelling about that. I saw this and recognized this. Ours take it to to an an extreme, certainly take it a certain distance away from traditional. I agree with what Jason said and I just, yeah, I think the storytelling component quality, that fictive quality is really important to me. And I think that for me, one of the reasons why I've gotten the bug and want to just be making video essays instead of writing is because the form lends itself to storytelling so much more with with a rich variety of options, a lot more than academic prose. And I think on that note, it's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much for an epic conversation. And I mean that in the literal and figurative sense. Hopefully next time in Vermont, fiddleheads on me. But uh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. 